Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we take a look at the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with our boy. Wow, yeah, with our boy. <laughs> and this show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. Wow, with our boy. Dude, that's, yeah, man. Changing it up. I like it. I like it a lot. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm just processing it now, but yeah. <laughs> Our boy. I'm your boy. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, what's up, dude? Dude, it's revelation. I, I don't know how we could not be excited getting into another lesson coming into the book of Revelation. I'm excited. The the only the only rough thing about it is that it's Revelation six through fourteen, so it's eight chapters of Revelation. And when you look at the book of Revelation, just trying to understand one chapter can take a long time. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure that we're going to be able to cover everything with here, and and you know some of this stuff is going to be covered a little bit better in a couple of weeks when we close the Book of Revelation because that's where that's where in the Revelation they start explaining what the symbols are and what they mean, and and I think that'll make more sense and make better sense to maybe take some of the content from this reading and and push it into our wrap-up at the end of the year. Yep. But there's enough here that I think we can have a lot of fun talking about what we have, these six, seven seals, trumpets flying around. That's all I want. People blowing trumpets. All I want is trumpets flying around, people blowing trumpets, dude. Dude, do we have... We're going to get the musical band going, dude. Do, do we have Do we have a clip of Night Rider with, with you playing the trumpet? Oh, yeah, we do. Because that would be fantastic. Yeah, we do. I know, but we but it's visual. It's the it's, visual it's, it's part visual. of that that makes it work. I mean, we could still get a little bit of trumpet blast, but yeah, maybe. But it's the visual that makes it. All right. So what else we got? I think I think that's it. Okay. Well, let's get into it. Let's dive in. So where where we left you guys last week was chapter five. And and I think it's I think it's important to just give us that segue because it really it bleeds into each other, right? Chapter five, as you recall, you have the host of heaven gathered around, and the question is, who is worthy to unseal this book? And the book has the seven seals, which represents a thousand years of earth history each. And and nobody was worthy and 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 that's where John was looking about and, and in the point of tears, ready to cry, like what? And then that's when the lamb steps up. And, and I, I really just want to maybe just read one or two verses from here, just to set the stage. This is verse five. And one of the elders said unto me, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And, and I, I want us to focus on the imagery right? Because he says the lion can do it. But then he's going to call him the root of David. So now we're referring to him, the root, a tree, a plant, right? The tree of life. So he went from lion to tree of life. Uh, He hath prevailed to open the seals. And then verse 6, the lamb as it had been slain, having, having seven horns and seven eyes, walks up to take this book. And, and it's not that it's a literal lamb, or lion, or tree. It's that all of these images symbolically represent Jesus Christ. And so as we get into the book of Revelation, I think it's important that we understand that a lot of what we're talking about has symbolic value in what it's doing, and, and, and why is it being referred to as a lion? Why is it being referred to as a lamb? Why, why seven eyes or seven horns? And some of it is going to break down specifically to what these mean. And, and some of it, I, th- I, think it's, uh, I, I think that's part of the miracle of some of these symbols is, is how broad it can be. And you can scope out and you can see it in so many different ways. And then you can zoom in and see it very applicable to very specific situations. And, and it's part of the amazement, the wonderment that is art right? Art sometimes, I mean, we talked a little bit about art last week, but, but can take on different interpretations. And sometimes even the imagery, the symbol, the power of art takes on life beyond the creator that, that put it into there, right? When an artist creates their, their work, 
Sometimes it's those that appreciate the art that see something in there that even the artist hadn't imagined when they created it. Or even the artist looking back and reflecting on that and saying, yeah, I didn't even realize this was there. And, and it takes on, it's, it, it's almost like the art surpasses the, the creator to teach the creator or to even teach lessons on its own. That as we, we put something out there, sometimes we even learn more that we wouldn't have otherwise. That makes any sense. Not only does that make sense, but that's actually a, in in the art world something that is talked about in a very very profound um, statement. And I don't know, I guess kind of realization that you just made. And I don't know how applicable it is to the point you're making, but as a songwriter, and and it talked about quite a bit in the songwriting community and in the visual art community all the time is is the learning the processes of of putting pen to paper and learning the processes of or paintbrush to canvas, right? And letting letting your almost subconscious do the talking and being okay not knowing exactly what it is and then and then over time realizing what some of those things meant, right? And is and I can't tell you how it just proves itself over and over as a songwriter that you, um, again, it's putting pen to paper. And there's there's times where you know I'd, I've written some some songs that felt very honest and very sincere in the moment of writing them, and I definitely didn't fully understand even a lot of the lines that were kind of coming out, but that felt right and that felt good. And years later, looked back and continue to look back and find new clues and even deeper meanings and connections with those things. And for me, for me, I think that the correlation to like the spiritual nature of those things has always kind of been learn the word, right? Read the scriptures, even if you don't know, right? We encourage our kids to read the scriptures, right? Mm-hmm. We, I have to assume that my nine-year-old probably doesn't even can't even probably read what a bunch of the words are right in 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 a lot of these texts so but that's not the point of it i don't think at the at the time is you have to know as you're reading this you have to have the deepest of understanding for this or it's worthless or it's not doing something instead i believe that as we continue to go through the processes that we've been commanded the point of that really is start putting those things in your brain start putting those things inside of you and over time those things really do a light does shine on and illuminate and it's it's crazy the things that we naturally start thinking back to i feel like as as we as we start making some of these connections, then you're like, oh, yeah. And then, hey, remember, there's that scripture. Oh, yeah. And then, I mean, even as we were talking tonight about the idea of like the crystal ball, like could, yeah. could that have could that have its roots in the, the Urim, Urim and Thummim? And it's like, but then it's like, oh, yeah, we're told that the world's going to be a sea, of glass. A, a sea of glass. And you're told, it's like all these things, right? So you start putting these pieces together that that you can't put together if you haven't consumed it. And as an artist, I believe, or as somebody personally that strives to make art or to be an artist, I I really believe that so much of so much of good art again is communication and its relations and it's it's making connections with other people. And so, for me, it's like go be a good person, go experience, go read books, go go learn life, so that you have more ways to connect to more people and that as you just try to as the artist be be well read and be experienced in life and and listen to perspectives and try to be compassionate and try to understand that naturally what comes out of you will be a deeper richer you know language in whatever I guess that medium is, but it is shocking how, like a patriarchal blessing, like just throughout your life, it's just crazy how you were for sure that this is what it meant, 
and then life changes and you realize oh my goodness this is even this is even a deeper meaning for what that could have been um anyways patriarchal blessing is a great reference and and i think we get used to learning in a linear pattern talk about math right you need to know how to add before you multiply or spelling and you need to learn your alphabet you need to start learning this and 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 there's things that you have to learn before you can learn the other but in a lot of these things it's not a linear learning it's it's a circular learning in the sense that there is no clear starting point you don't know where to jump in and and sometimes you just you have to go right in the middle of the circle and you're going to be lost because you don't have the context before and you're coming right in the middle right and you just start reading and you don't understand, but as you read and you go through, you start to pick up the context and understand to where it helps the next time through, and it helps the next time through, and it's almost a very circular way of learning rather than a, a linear way of learning. And I, and I think that's why we go back to the temple often. I think that's why we read our patriarchal blessings and return back to the scriptures, because it's it's messy. It's not a clear, I'm starting here, I'm finishing here, and now I'm going to know everything. It's a, it's a mess. We, we just got to start somewhere, and as we go through it, we'll see things, and it, it's almost one eternal round. We just take another pass, and another pass, and another pass. And even the word remember. We'll remember, I feel like, a lot of the things that we maybe have read and didn't think too much about because contextually it wasn't where we were or you know needed or whatever that is so so as life provides us opportunities to have new context around those things we'll remember and i love that word always and that word continues to reveal itself as so much more of a incredible and profound idea remembering it's been a lot on my mind lately. I mean, you've you've really you've really started a fire for me with remember and and seeing that so much in the New Testament. So it it was kind of a nice shout out in the in the Christmas message. And and I I don't remember her name. It's ironic. Ironically enough. enough. <laughs> but boy, she 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 just drove that and and remember 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 it's it's important. I think we forget we forget often the only way we remember is that familiarity being in the content learn and and and, and that's what it's going to do for us and these symbols start to take on meaning as we become more familiar with it as it becomes a bigger part of us I, I think it comes to life and and maybe something else that might be frustrating but hopeful at the same time uh, Joseph Smith when commenting on the book of Revelation and and I don't know maybe he said it tongue in cheek just to frustrate people or maybe he was sincere he said that the book of Revelation was the most plain book God ever caused to be written I, I don't I don't know if that's just his perspective as a prophet cuz he understood it very well or or if he's just trying to like make people feel bad about or if he's just about being where they were maybe it's just he was being funny <laughs> maybe he's like trust me the book of Isaiah is uh, is the most straightforward book ever made like maybe it was a joke maybe it was a joke but it does I, I don't know let's see how plain we can make this tonight and and I think having that context you know taking us to that starting point because chapter six is going to be cracking open each one of these seals and when we understand that each seal represents a thousand years of history and 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 I, I say that right and you're you're kind of either taking my word for it, or you know maybe maybe it deserves a little bit of explaining of why why is this what the seven seals represent? And if we go if we go and work our way perhaps backwards, it seems maybe more familiar with with things in our time. It helps us to understand what these seals mean, maybe in times past that we're less familiar with. And so when we talk about what happens in the seventh seal. And we're talking about Christ coming and ruling all the nations. This becomes a very apparent, we're talking millennial themes. We're talking about the end of the world. And as we talk about the sixth seal and and going and gathering people and sealing them to the Lord and and this restorative process and bringing the people back and salvation through the atonement of Jesus Christ, it it seems to match with, with our understanding of during this thousand years, at some point, you're going to have a restoration of the gospel heading up into the millennium. And then you back up one more seal before that, 
and they talk about the martyrdom of saints. And, and what time period is more appropriate to be highlighted by the martyrdom of saints than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? And of the uh, 11 of the 12 apostles that follow him, right? That I say 11. I mean, Judas kind of offed himself. I don't know if that really counts as a martyrdom. But most of the apostles, right, being, being martyred, and then not even, not even just that. I mean, the persecution from the Jews trying to stone and kill and, and slay. But then you even have the Romans and the Colosseum and the persecutions that these guys felt and all of these people that died simply for what they believe. It seems like a good characterization of that. One thing to maybe, to maybe put into context, when they're opening the seals— and reading this this book, it's not like John is going there and let me describe every event that's going to happen within that thousand-year period of time. He's taking something that he can highlight from that time period and saying this, this, this represents this time. This represents because this was prominent here, because this was prominent here. And, and when we talk about the millennium and the millennium being a time of a thousand years of peace— it's a thousand-year period of history. It's, a, it's the seventh seal. But when we look at that seventh seal being cracked and open, there's a lot of horrific things or a lot of scary things or a lot of uh, intimidating things that you wouldn't necessarily associate with peace. But maybe it's not that there's a whole thousand years and every one of those years represented this peaceful kumbaya moment on earth. But the great achievement is that during that thousand-year period of time, world peace was achieved. And that's something so memorable that we're going to note that for, for the accomplishment of that time period. So if we, if we start working our way backwards, we can see that these seals represent different periods of time. And, and, and we can associate that, which is familiar with us. So, so going to the very beginning then, when we start reading, he opens the first seal and, and he sees a, a horse, right? Uh, he sees, let's see, verse 2 of chapter 6. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown given him. And he went forth conquering to conquer. And then he opened the second seal, and he said, come and see. And he sees another person riding a horse. These are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I think a lot of people equate the four horsemen with the apocalypse as something that's going to come towards the end of time, the crisis, the, you got the four horsemen and the end of the world and all these crazy things. But if you understand this book is representing six different seals leading up to the seventh seal, and that the first seal represented the first thousand years, well, then that first white horse isn't some horse coming at the end of time to rain death down on the world. In fact, as we read the book of Moses and we read about Enoch and we see about how great of a conqueror he was, that people would stand afar off and with his word, he would, all of a sudden you start to see, okay, I can see this. This dispensation marked this time period where this was happening. And then you follow it with, you know, look at the famines that were happening. You look at Abraham and his family that were dying, starving, and they had to send his sons down to Egypt where Joseph was able to feed them. You have this time period. I mean, famine is sprinkled all throughout the world, but it seems like there's this time and period where, where this is happening, where this is more associated with. So when you start understanding some of these events in, in the history of the world as, as summarizing different time periods, I think it becomes a little bit less intimidating. And, and we're not waiting for four horsemen to come down and do some crazy things. It puts these events in context. And as you look at what the world has been through, then you realize that what we have left to go maybe doesn't seem as crazy or unimaginable. We've, we've been here, we've done that, maybe it's not going to be so hard getting to the end. So let's fast forward to some of these seals, um, and, and let's just get to the sixth seal. This is verse 12, chapter 6. And I beheld, and when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as the fig casteth their uh, untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll, which is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains of the mighty men, and every bondsman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens, and the rocks, and the mountains, and said unto the mountains, and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb." 
for the great day of his wrath has come. And they associate that with the opening of the sixth seal. And so if we're looking at this time period-wise, we say it's about 4,000 years roughly before Christ came. The first 1,000 years, zero to about 1,000, would be the fifth seal. The sixth seal would be somewhere around 1,000 AD to 2,000 AD. And and I'm not using this to try to nail down specific dates to just kind of roughly look at what we're talking about. If we're saying that this equates to the opening of the sixth seal, then we're saying that this roughly includes events that transpired almost a thousand years ago. And we talk about these things, the heaven departed as a scroll when it's rolled together, every mountain and island were moved out of their places. These are things that we associate with the end of the world. And yet the world has existed a thousand years after these events happened. And if they got through those times, maybe those times aren't what we imagined them to be. If the heavens are disappearing, maybe the heavens are disappearing because there's a thick cloud or smoke in the air that's causing us to not see it. Maybe there's a massive volcanic eruption that's really disrupted the world. Maybe the whole new heaven and new earth is because now we've got people who've, who've only known one small corner of the world have spread out into a whole different world in a new continent, in a new area, and seeing things differently. And you think about the maps they had of the earth back then versus the maps that we have today. Things change. And you want to talk about a new heaven. Go back and try to understand how they understood the relationship between earth and the heaven and the idea that everything revolved around the earth or how simple or how small the heavens were to where we've been able to look now into the sky with, with telescopes and, and the, the advent of modern physics and understand the relationship with the earth and how it fits and moves and revolves around the heavenly bodies to understand our understanding of heaven today is vastly different than how they understood it a thousand years ago. And a lot of that happened, I would say, during the sixth seal. If we try to look at it from about 1,000 to about 2,000 AD, think of how much our understanding of the earth and the heavens have changed. And you think about the astronomers that we've had in, in Tycho Brahe and in Copernicus and Galileo, and, and you think about the advances in, in physics with Isaac Newton, and, and even Albert Einstein. I, we've had some of the greatest minds really redefine how we view the heavens and the earth. So maybe we open up our minds a little bit and look at some of the things that we've been through and realize, you know what? We've been through this. It's not so scary. I'm not maybe as afraid as I was to face whatever's coming ahead of me too. And maybe we've been through a lot of the garbage. Maybe Maybe our ancestors went through a lot of that, and maybe, maybe I don't need to be so terrified. I don't know. There's something comforting about knowing that other people have been through it or that we've survived that, knowing that, you know what, I can do this too, if that makes sense. Yeah. There's also been a lot of heinous things that have happened even before that, though, too. Oh. I mean, like, when you, when you think of how terrifying life would have been during, you know, various plagues throughout history, during just times of war and misery and lack of basic, you know, food, water, all of those things. It's like as much as we, as much as, to your point, as much as we know that things are going to get gnarlier as, you know, we get closer to the second coming, we can also be hopefully very thankful that we live in a time of relative peace in in at least in relation to the last 5000 years on this oh, earth man i mean we, we we can raise our kids knowing that we're not going to need to teach them how to use a sword just so that we can protect the little farm that we can hopefully grow some food on before it gets taken by a king and you know, some other feuding tribe is just going to come through and wipe us out before the age of thirty. So, I, I as so as much as it as much as we know that things are going to get crazy and things things are and can be, I also am just thankful so much 
that we do still just live in such a relative time of peace and comfort and and I sometimes worry that the that the things that are going to be the craziest are going to be so self-inflicted out of potentially our own not laziness but sometimes our own um I don't know passive nature like we're almost we're almost being it's almost too comfortable that a lot of the things I think are going to be made worse because of a lot of people's indifference and a lot of people's kind of um, unwillingness to actually do hard things and unwillingness to step up to the plate because they've had just such a relatively easy, comforting go of it to that point that they're, they're um, I don't know, not placency, but just the, just sometimes the general, I don't know, non-assertiveness in life i think is going to be the catalyst to a lot of the a lot of the gnarliest things that are going to happen you put that well because we live in a society where the term cruel and unusual punishment exists i know that's amazing right like that's and it's not even exactly definable that's the funny thing too but keep going yeah and 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 in a society where 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 we become very critical in how parents are raising their children and what discipline looks like and what it can and what it can't include, when we put that in perspective, and and I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to make judgment on what's right or wrong as far as raising kids, but I am trying to say look at what we are critical of today in relationship to times before. When when punishment, I mean, look at Braveheart, look at the London Tower, look at look at the Spanish Inquisition, look at how people treated people, not not just behind closed doors in your house, but government sponsored. Like this was the more cruel, the more creative, the more unusual, the more effective. Like let's sign up for that. I here's a new technique that that's even more gruesome than the last. We've we've come through some pretty dark times in history where we were being very creative on how to create bad environments yes. how to torture people yep. like here let me let me see if i can't inflict pain in a in a more in a cruel and unusual way yeah to where to where we're like whoa 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 let's let's draw some lines i know this person did some horrific things but they still have rights yeah yeah exactly it is it's the it's the i wonder what when we say we only know that it's going to get worse, and and we do accept like there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and there is, and I feel like there always kind of has been. So when we when we do say, oh, I think it's only going to get worse, that that leaves a lot of um, there's there's a lot of things that it leaves it open to interpretation, I guess. Like, what does that actually mean? Like, how can it get worse than, like, the Dark Ages? And, and right, like, maybe the focus is, I know it's going to get better. I mean, isn't the millennium supposed to be known for a thousand years of peace? How do we get to a thousand years of peace if we're not improving on the lessons that we've learned in the past? Maybe, maybe things aren't going to be as bad as what we imagined them sure. to be. Maybe a lot of that is, is behind us. Hopefully. Hopefully. I also, I also just don't... I also try not to be naive enough, though, to think like that we couldn't find ways of having life be pretty insane. So yeah, and and I can't say that we've passed it all. Uh, there's definitely when we get to the seventh seal opening. I mean, it's I I mean, let's get there, right? right. Let's get there. So chapter seven. After these things, and so this is this is talking about the sixth seal opening, and we're talking kind of wrapping things up before we even get to the seventh seal. So this is towards the end of the sixth seal. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor the sea, nor any tree. And I think about the winds. The Lord talks about his winds for scattering. And I will send my winds and the east wind for destruction and the winds on the four corners of the earth, and I will drive them to and throw. The winds of scattering. And so what's he doing? At the end of the sixth seal, so we should expect somewhere towards the end of 1,000 to roughly 2,000, there's going to be a, a pause 
in in the commotion and the scattering and the pushing people around to the four corners of the earth. You want to talk about driving people out to the four corners of the earth. You look at 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 during this time period, this thousand year span, discovering the new world and people seeking religious freedom and going and and populating the four corners of the earth. But towards the end, there's going to be a pause. And we're not going to be scattering and driving people to the to the edge of the earth anymore. If we're having a pause, it's so that we can start pulling it together, so that we can start gathering it. That's 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 what I see in this when he starts holding the wind. It's to, to start gathering, and you see that verse two. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, "Hurt not the earth." neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So we're going to put a pause to the destruction, and we're going to start gathering people. And, and that sounds like what we've been talking about. When we talk about the awful, horrific things we've come to where we're enjoying relative peace, and we're seeing a gospel restored towards the end of that thousand years, 1820, when Joseph Smith has his first vision 1830, when the church is restored, you're wrapping up that thousand-year period with the Lord starting to seal his people, gather them together, and calm the winds to start to, to organize things. And, and, and it's interesting. It says, um, and I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed 144,000, all the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Judah, 12,000. And I'm not going to read all of this. It was just I'm going to sum it up with 12 tribes. Out of each tribe, there was 12,000. And it comes to the sum then, 12 times 12,000, 144,000. And the question I think that a lot of us dwell on is, who are the 144,000? What is the meaning of the 144,000? What, what are we supposed to take away from this? And we look at our, in our church, if, if we believe that this is the church of Jesus Christ, and this is the calming of the winds to gather and seal in these people, we're a lot higher than 144,000. And I would say we're stacked heavily in the Ephraim camp. So, so where are we supposed to take with this? What, what, what are we supposed to run with this? And I think that we unfairly focus too much on the 144 and miss the next verse. And, and this, to me, blew me away. So this is verse 9. After this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations, and kindreds, and people, and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. So who are the ones that the Lord is gathering and sealing and, and, and bringing to him? It's not just the 144,000 from Israel. It's a numberless host. And this was the promise made to Abraham. Look at the stars and tell me if you can count them. Look at the sands of the sea and tell me if you can count them. That's going to be your posterity. It's not 144,000, 12,000 from each of these 12 sons. That's just the beginning. And so when I look at this symbolically, it's almost that we owe a debt of gratitude to our Jewish heritage, our Jewish ancestors that brought us these teachings, that gave us the acquaintance to, to who God is, that, that laid the foundation that represent a very orderly 12 from 12 tribes and 12,000 and, and putting this all together so that a great multitude that could not be numbered could be saved. I almost go back to that first promise to Abraham, and he said, you will have a son. And then he's asking him to sacrifice his son, but what does he gain? Abraham 17, you will inherit all the nations, not just the one you almost sacrifice the one to get everyone else. And then he doesn't even end up having to sacrifice the one. He gets the one too. The Lord does still maintain and have his love for his original Israel, and he will save them, and he will number them, and he will count them and bring them into his fold. But because of them, many more will be saved. It's not a limited 144,000 seating where you have to ask the question, am I one? Am I one of the 144? We don't have to be one of the 144. That verse, the very next verse, I think we all miss it because we focus so much on that. A numberless countitude, so great that no man could count them from every nation. And that's why it was so important so early on when the church was restored 
and you think you can't even take care of things at home, you're being chased out of your house, and and your women are being treated poorly, your kids starving in the wintertime, and yet what are the men doing? Being called to missions all over the world because we need to start calling in from every corner, all over the place, let's start. It's fulfilling this scripture. It was that important. That's that's how I see it. And the beautiful thing about these people, let's go down to verse fourteen. And I said unto them, Sir, thou knowest. And he and he and he said to me, uh, You know what? I should read verse thirteen because you don't you, you missed the question with that. Verse thirteen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? So you can almost see the question. We had the hundred forty-four thousand. We had it all organized. Who in the world are all these other people? Where did they come from? The numberless hosts that are all clothed in white, who are they? Where do they come from? Now, the answer to that question in verse 14, and I said unto them, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation. And and the Greek word here translated for tribulation is the press, the oil press, the the wine press that that we see that's associated with the atonement of Jesus Christ. And this is the, the wonderful thing about Revelation is this imagery and this dual meaning that it takes on because we're the ones in the wine press now rather than Christ. And from the wine press, the pressure, the, the tribulation, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And and again, this is some powerful imagery. And as we were reading this in the Come Follow Me with my kids, I mean, this this really stumped them. How in the world can you make your robes white by washing it in blood? Wouldn't it make all of your robes red? And and I think there's something in that when we talk about our robes becoming white because his was red, yet isn't it the other way around? Because we were red, he had to be white in order to take our stains. And and you go back to Isaiah chapter one, verse eighteen, though your sins be as scarlet, yet they'll be as white as snow, right? And and though your sins be talking about them being red and and being cleansed white and made white only through the sacrifice of Christ. And and he's going to—we've talked about this. Is is he the lion? Is he the lamb? Is is he the one that's treading the winepress or the one that's being tread upon? And and it's all of all of the above, but so are we. And and we're the ones treading the winepress, but we're the ones being tread upon. We're the ones with the red garments, and yet we're the ones with the white ones. He's the one with the white, but he's the—it's just interesting to see this interplay. And and it's going to be a lot of that. Sorry, that's kind of— Good stuff. Um, yeah, and, and, and maybe one last point with this verse. The fact that they had to wash their robes— you should tell us something. These people aren't perfect. They didn't come to Christ with white robes. They came to Christ with dirty robes, and yet they were still saved. And and let's not wait for our robes to be white before we approach Christ, or I promise you they will never be white. Christ is for us that have the stained robes, the embarrassing things that we don't want to see Christ because we, we, we feel like we need to hide. That's the reason we need to come to him so that we can find a way that only through him can those stains be removed. Love it. All right. Let's, let's go. Chapter 8. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. And it's important to note that they're saying in heaven is the silence. And when you talk about silence, the word of God is is quick, is powerful, is judgment. And if he's holding, abstaining from speaking, if there's silence, it's almost as if he's withholding judgment. There's a time of, of silence in, in a half hour in heaven, whatever that equates to here on earth, where the heavens are holding back their judgment, 
And, and I think we see that when we read about people saying, well, he's delaying his coming or he's not coming at all or he's given up on us or the God that the, the heavens are closed or, or whatever the case may be. He's giving us a chance to, to, to repent, to make it right, to, to withhold judgment until we can fix it, till we can wash our clothes clean. That's what he's doing. And, and he's, not, he's not being quick to censor us, to condemn us, to, to blame us for every little thing he do, we do. He's showing us love and giving us the opportunity to wash our clothes white for a space of time before the judgments start coming out so that we don't get caught up in it. That's, that's how I see it. And then we get to verse 2, And I saw seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And, and they're going to start doing some crazy things with these trumpets. The first one, and, and the smoke of the incense which came up with the prayers out of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it up with fire of the altar and cast it to the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. The reason I bring that up is, is location. Location. We've talked about this before. When John opens this vision, he hears a voice and he turns and he sees the menorah. And then he describes this passage through the temple, going through the veils. And, and it all starts for John in the holy place and takes you up to the holy of holies. Well, in here, when they open the seventh seal, the incense altar is also another piece of furniture in the holy place. It's also, so here we have the holy place is, is where the seventh seal begins. He's taking coals from this. So setting, location, I think this is important. Because fast forward, I, he's going to go through all these plagues, and we'll, we'll see what we get to. But chapter 11, verse 1, and, and there was given me a, a reed, like a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall be tread under forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. And, and so for John, he's measuring the temple. He's measuring the incense altar inside the temple, those that worship in the temple, but everything outside the temple he's leaving out. So we keep going back to this. What's outside is going to be tread down and destroyed. And how do you get in? Because everything in this vision keeps going back to being inside of this temple, being inside the holy place. And, and we're going to start looking at what happened to the people that are outside, because this is the context, the setting, when he talks about a dragon waging a war with Michael and, and with his tail drew away a third part of the heavens. These are the ones that never made it through the first veil. And I, and I think about this, the first veil being birth. And, and, and they didn't make it out. They're going to be tread. It's outer darkness. It's out whatever. And, and those who were willing made it here. This is where it starts. This is what's measured. This is what's saved. This is what's going to be resurrected. This is what... And so going back to John and his measuring stick, everything that he measures is going to be saved. Everything that's not measured is going to be destroyed. And, and, and to, to some extent, all of us that have come here on this earth have made it into this holy place. The earth is the holy place. We're going to be saved to, 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 some, to some degree. Okay. Like it. Let's, um, let's take this and go back to that Michael dragon in chapter 12 and see if I can't make some sense out of this too. Verse 1, And there appeared a great wonder... And it's interesting, this word wonder in, in, in the Greek, um, semeron, is sign, mark, or token. In heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cry, uh, cried travailing in birth and painful to be delivered. It's important to note that this sign is in the heavens. So as John's talking about things that are happening he looks up and he's looking at the stars. And, and when you try to look at the stars, we have a constellation, Virgo, which is a virgin, which is a woman. And at her feet is, is 
this this serpent, this dragon constellation, and at the above her head is Leo, the the lion constellation, and within Leo you have uh, Regum, the king star, and and so when we start looking at these signs that he sees in the heaven, it's almost as if to help us always remember these images are put in front of us every night to remind us, to remind us, to remind us. And what John's going to do is take these images and then explain what they're supposed to be reminding us of. And when he talks about it being clothed in the sun, this happens every September. This is why Virgo's associated with September. The the sun, as as the earth moves and how it works, as the sun, as, as the earth revolves around the sun, the constellation, what's a good way to try to illustrate this verbally? You have, you have, the sun is inevitably always going to be between the earth and a constellation. So in September, the constellation that the sun is going to be in, or blocking or over, is, is Virgo. And so Virgo is clothed in the sun, literally from our point of view, looking up at this earth. And then the moon also traverses all of the different constellations, but rather than doing it on an annual schedule, it's doing it through a monthly schedule. So the moon will be at the feet of Virgo a few days in the month of September. This happens every year. It's an annual process. And then you have the king, the, 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 the Leo above Virgo. Virgo representing this virgin who's going to bear a child, and he's going to have the king, and then you have the serpent that will have power to bruise his heel, but he will have power to crush his his head. And so John is going to do his best to to give us the backdrop to these signs in the heavens. And when he does this, he says, and there appeared a wonder in heaven, and behold, a great uh, red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns, we'll get into those later, upon his head, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had place prepared for God, and that they should feed her for two score, or for a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not prevailed not neither was there neither neither was their place found any more in heaven and the great dragon was cast out the old serpent called the devil and satan which deceived the whole world he was cast out to the earth and his angels were cast out with him and and they talk about this too and now i heard a loud voice saying in heaven now has come the salvation and strength of the kingdom of god and the power of christ for the accuser of his brethren is cast down and they overcame uh, him by the power of the blood now verse 12 therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them however woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea for the devil is come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. All right, let's try to, let's try to make sense of this. He was cast out of heaven down to earth. And, and where was all of this happening? It, it's important to understand that this is happening all in the heavens. And if we understand that this was happening in the heavens, not here on earth— but that he was cast down to the earth, then and maybe another important question is to ask is when? And if Satan was cast down to earth and, and waged war here on earth, we have to look at when was the first time we see Satan here on earth trying to destroy God's creation? Adam and Eve. So he was cast out before the beginning. So this war that's being waged what John is doing is he is looking at the signs in the heaven and not describing things that are going to be happening in the seventh seal, not describing things that are happening in his current seal, but he's looking at these and saying, let me give you context to what's happening here on earth. These signs that you see 
every night in the stars are supposed to point us to remember that there was a war waged in heaven where Satan and a third of his hosts, a third of the hosts of heaven, rebelled against God and they could no longer stay in heaven. They were cast down to the earth. Because they left the heaven, the heavens could rejoice, but woe to those who were on earth because you're sharing that place of habitation with Satan and a third of the hosts of heaven that were sent here as well. This is where it's taught in the Bible and and and, and semi-plainly that Satan and his hosts rebelled and were cast out to earth and sent here where where we also live. Boy, that just seems long. Great. It's long, but we got to know it, dude. All right. All right, this is this is our circular learning as opposed to linear learning. That's right. And hopefully just diving in. That's what we got to do. I'm going to take us to Psalms 82 on this. Okay. And and hopefully this is going to this is going to go hand in hand with what we're reading. God stands in the congregation of the gods. And I know if you're reading and following along with me in the King James, it says that he stands in the congregation of the mighty. But here in the Hebrew, the the mighty literally is Elohim. God, the one God, stands in the congregation of gods, the many gods. And you can see that that's what the text says because the very next line confirms it. He, God, judgeth among the gods, lowercase g, the many gods. Now, who are these many gods that he's talking about? Who is this host of heaven that God is standing among and judging? Let's learn about these gods. Because it says, verse 2, How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? So what's the character? What's the nature of these gods? Imperfect. These gods are imperfect gods. And so this is this is Psalms 82 is the locker room speech a coach gives his team before they take the field. I'm looking at you. How long are you guys going to be? Maybe even a halftime speech, because you know what? You're out there blowing it, and I need you to change some things up, right? And he says, defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I said, you are gods and all of you children of the Most High. And this is the Most High addressing them. I'm telling you guys, you are gods. But you shall die like, and it says men here, but that word in Hebrew is Adam. And it can be translated as man or Adam. I like to translate it as Adam. You shall die like Adam and fall like one of the princes. We're talking about a physical death, Adam, and a spiritual death, one of the princes, Satan, the dragon that was cast out. All of you are going to sin. All of you are going to physically die. I'm telling you, you're gods, but you're going to go through this mortal experience. And he says, arise, Elohim. It says, oh God, but this is the Elohim again, the gods with the lowercase g. Judge the earth. And this is the line that's most important to me here. For you shall inherit all nations. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount when Christ said, the meek shall inherit the earth. What did it take for us to be able to inherit the earth? When God said, I have a plan, we had to be meek enough to accept his plan and say, here am I, send me. And those that said, I have a better plan, were not meek. They didn't come here to inherit the earth. They were cast out to the earth, but they didn't enter the earth, if that makes any sense. I'm going to take this back. We made it through the first veil coming here. This earth is our inheritance. God has given us an opportunity to be like God. He's given us the coach, the pep talk. And doing that, we have entered past the first veil into the holy place. The earth is our holy place. It was prepared for us. It's sacred for our experience, for our learning, for our becoming like Jesus Christ. And the holy place is surrounded with images of Christ. 
with the menorah, with the showbread altar, with the table, with, with the, the incense altar. And those who were cast out to earth didn't pass through the veil. They're the ones in the courtyard that John is saying when he says measure, measure those that are therein, measure the temple, measure those that are going to be saved. Those that are the outside are not going to be saved. Sweet. Let's keep going. So, Joe Smith is right, dude. Just plain as day. I I hope it's plain. I hope I'm not just talking too long on this. No, I, I mean we we I mean we got to move on though. So we we do have to move on. But this is this this is what John's trying to describe. This is the context. So when we start going through some of the 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 signs of what's going to happen. Um, let's see. Verse, so, so chapter 8, I'm going backwards now. And the first angel sounded, and there followed hell and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded, as if it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and a third part of the heaven became blood. And the third part of the creation which were in the sea had died, and a third, and a third, and a third, and a third. And what is he doing here? John's giving us the context and and the imagery and the symbol. Yes, there's life here on earth, but a third part of the creation was destroyed. A third part of the creation was wasted. A third part is here waging war with the saints, with with the people, with with those who listened. And and it was the meek that inherit the earth, and it'll only be the meek that can take the next step and, and move on. Got it. All right. Love it. (laughs) <laughs> got time for like one more like this is this is the end all right this is the end you give me some some of the doors right now is that what you're saying <laughs> let's go to chapter 11 after john measured everything We'll finish with this. Verse 3, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days. There's a couple things that I, I hope you guys notice as we keep reading this over and over and over again. He'll say time, times, and half a time. And, and if you add single time with double time, that's three, and then half a time, three and a half, that shows up a lot. When he says 42 months, there's 12 months, and another 12 months is 24, and another is 36, and then you take half a year, and that's 42. So 42 months is another way of saying time, times, and half a time, which is also another way of saying three and a half years. And and he uses these numbers, which is also the same thing, by the way, as saying 1,260 days. So he'll say it by days, he'll say it by months, he'll say it by years, and he'll say it by times. But he's saying the same thing every time. And, and he's going to refer to this here, um, 1,203 score days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must be in this manner killed. These shall have power to shut up heaven and the rain. And, and they're going to be invincible until the time when the beast raises up and kills them. And this is the prophecy of, of the two prophets. But I wanted to point out a few things here. I think we've always associated this prophecy with with two prophets dying in Jerusalem. That's, that's what I've always grown up knowing. But as I read this revelation, I, I, don't, I don't see it per se. Because here's what it's saying. It's saying, I will give power unto my two witnesses. And what are the two witnesses? Because I think witnesses becomes a lot more broad than just prophets. It says they'll prophesy, but it doesn't necessarily call them prophets. It's not until we read Doctrine and Covenants when Joseph Smith, they ask him the question about this, and he refers to them as prophets. But then where do we get the idea that they die in Jerusalem? Because it says in verse 8, And their dead bodies body shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom. You're like, wait, spiritually it's called Sodom? That's, that's Jerusalem? 
it, it seems like a weird stretch to me. But then he says, and Egypt. And I go, wait, is it Sodom or Egypt? Because those two are kind of far away from each other on a map. Uh, where also our Lord was crucified. Well, now we get Jerusalem. And it's like we took those three locations, Sodom, Egypt, and where the Lord was crucified. Well, I know where the Lord was crucified. I'm sticking with that one. They're going to die in Jerusalem. But but where, it, it doesn't necessarily say. In fact, what they're doing is quoting three evil references. And, and I think of Jerusalem as being this holy city. And, and John's going to refer to Jerusalem as a holy city. I don't I don't know that we can limit what happens to them to things that are going to have to happen in the city of Jerusalem. It's not in the book of Revelation. I'm not sure where that comes from. Okay. I mean, is it Doctrine and Covenants where it comes from? No. Not that I not that I read. Okay. I'm going to have to try to figure out where that came from. Okay. Awesome. Maybe maybe somebody listening can point us in that direction too if you know off the top of your head. Well, we try to think of two witnesses. What are the two witnesses? And, and to me, this almost becomes interesting. And in fact, boy, when we start reading this, what happens when they're dead? Uh, verse 10, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them or dwelt, uh, that dwelt on earth. And after three days and half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood their feet and great fear fell upon them that saw them. And then what happens is they're carried up into heaven, and that's that's kind of the end of them. When I was thinking about this, Christ was dead for three days. And after three days, his spirit came back into his body, and then he was caught up into heaven and went back to God. And you know what? We mark his death. Well, we mark his birth. We celebrate by giving gifts to each other with Christmas every year. How, how is that different well, than... Well, even in Easter. I mean, a lot of people for Easter give, give presents and things like that, too, traditionally. Yeah, how is that different? Hmm. And when we talk about the two witnesses, you bring up a good point. What if the two witnesses, then, in this case, are Easter and Christmas? What could two witnesses be? What if the two witnesses is Judaism and Christianity? Interesting. Both of which rejected their God. Both of which ruled with an iron fist and, and issued out fire to destroy anyone that, that, that went against them, that, that didn't agree with, with their way of believing, were punishable by death. Yeah. And, and yet they had their end but both witnessed and testified to the nature of God? What if it refers to the Jews and the Gentiles? What if it refers to the Old Testament and the New Testament? Mm -hmm. Are they not also witnesses Witnesses. of Christ? Sure, absolutely. What if it refers to the Bible and the Book of Mormon? There you go. What if it refers to Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith? Hmm. What if it refers to, I don't know, it just the symbolism of this just starts to come to life. It is interesting, too, that we both, we celebrate Christmas and Hanukkah even kind of at the same, at the same time when you brought up the Jews and the Christians. And what if it's the Jews and the Gentiles? Yeah, that's what I mean, the Jews and the Gentiles, right? Yeah, right next to each other. I love thought-provoking questions like that. That's that's gonna that's gonna be fun to kind of think through, and maybe there are still two prophets that are literally going to die somewhere. That this is really gonna happen. But it's a just hard to believe that everybody's gonna be celebrating their deaths because these prophets were tormenting them. You know, I, I guess because that's the the question then that it would beg to ask is, okay, say you send over a couple of the twelve apostles. It's like I just don't feel like they're going over to Jerusalem to torment people. Well, see, this is the weird thing, too, because you look at the, the the fact that there's two, and they're tormenting everyone, and and if anyone speaks out against them, it's death, right? Yet this represents witnesses of God, the, the, the good guys. Then in Revelation, we're going to get to, 
and there was a beast that arose out of the sea with with the so, so many horns and this whatever this great beast right and then he's wounded with the sword and another beast rises up out and you have these two beasts that are that that everyone has to worship or what and and it's almost like these two beasts are in contrast with these two prophets and you're like wait what's the difference and the and the beasts are wounded by the sword and these prophets are going to die in the street and yet they both torment people and people are going to be celebrating the death and they both look out to be the bad guy but yet one's god and one's not it's kind of interesting how in the revelation it's going to paint babylon as as this woman and then it's going to describe her as a whore the whore that sits on the many waters that does all these things and then it's going to go and it's going to describe zion as a woman but wasn't zion also in a sense a whore that left the lord that went to go worship other gods that turned away and yet he talks about her being the bride and yet the way he describes both Babylon and Zion are almost in identical terms. And we look at it and say, well, Babylon was obviously the wrong one. And we're like, well, wait, wasn't Zion the one that turned away from God? And, and you almost have the same thing with the Jews and the Gentiles. And this whole, I, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's fascinating the imagery and, and the ideas that he uses. And 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 maybe challenge our perception on what is it to be the good guy versus the bad guy. I mean, at the end of the day, the saints are washing their garments clean because they were stained with blood, but yet they're using blood to wash them clean. I don't know. It's I love it. Like Joseph Smith said, just clear as mud. <laughs> it's the plainest book ever written. Yeah. Jason, thank you as always for all the prep that you put into this stuff. This is, I've just enjoyed sitting back and kind of just listening to this one and taking it in and, and gave me a lot of fun, thought-provoking stuff to think about. Um, the book of Revelation is is intense. I'm going to have to disagree with, with our beloved prophet on this one. This is not <laughs> the most plain book for the majority of us, but um, yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like I could probably point to some books that are a little bit more plain and straightforward. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, we have only a few episodes left of this year, then we get to get into the Book of Mormon, complete the complete the the cycle. I guess all four of the the standard works. I guess. Yeah. Um, we uh, we love any and appreciate any questions or comments, feedback. Uh, you can get a hold of us at the email address of hi at weeklydeepdive.com. Um, we do what we can to respond to everything when we have time. Um, but this is not our full-time gig. And we do have lives and families and responsibilities. So forgive us if, if we're not uh, immediately responding to everything. Um Check out our new podcast starting in January of 2024 called Inevitable Art. And uh, if that's it, then I guess uh, next week, right? Okay. See you.